Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. This is a podcast exploring how we can best maintain a sense of energy, inspiration, and wakefulness while living with the unique stressors of this very strange yet very potent time. My name is Brett Kane, and I'm going to be your host on this journey. And before we get into today's episode, I just want to start off by saying thank you so, so much for joining me this past year. 2023 has been a pretty big year for the show, and I just could not have done it without your continued listenership and support. I saw a big jump in uh, people who were tuning in, as well as just some amazing guests that have come onto the show and graced us with their wisdom and their insight. And I'm just so excited to see how this platform evolves in this upcoming year. And I am just so beyond thrilled that there are other people who are interested in exploring how to be more fully alive in these uncertain times. So again, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. And if you are a longtime listener, uh, all your continued support has just been uh, a treat and a gift. So thank you. Without further ado, uh, today's episode is very special for me. Joining us on the show today is the one and only Android Jones. For the uninitiated, Android is very likely one of the most prominent psychedelic visionary artists working today. You've undoubtedly come across his work in some form or another, whether it's scrolling through social media or seeing his clothing in a music festival. He's most known for his incredibly complex and stirring digital paintings, which have a crazy amount of detail and attention put into every square inch. He's been featured on countless album covers, as well as having his work projected onto the Empire State Building and the Sydney Opera House. For this conversation, we're going to be exploring a world-changing event that happened to Android at the start of 2023. Namely, that his art studio, which housed tens of thousands of dollars worth of his work and tools, was engulfed in flames. From there, we go on to explore transitions, dealing with tragedy, how to open up to receive support, and ultimately, how we can best help others navigating their own narrative collapse. This is a really juicy conversation with a lot of universal human elements to it, and I just hope that you're each able to get something out of it as we head into this new year. Because who knows what direction life is taking us. I don't know if you noticed, but it's very tense out there. And anything that we could use would be of benefit. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. If you want to stay plugged in with Android's work, head on over to androidjones.com. You can also follow him over on Instagram. That's really a great way to stay up to date with what he has going on. He's a very busy guy. A lot of projects in the works. If you want to support this show, head on over to patreon.com slash 21st Century Vitalism and consider becoming a patron. I only have one tier of reward. It's pretty much a glorified tip jar, but really anything helps to maintain the operation of this show. If you don't have the financial means, that's totally okay. Just subscribe on YouTube, like the video, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook. We're not new to the digital age at this point. Anything you can offer is a huge help and just lets me know that you're out there, which I love to hear from you. So without further ado, uh, please sit back, drink some tea, do some stretches, and most importantly, open your hearts to the one and only Android Jones. Okay, so Android, hello. We are now live with the show. Uh, I just want to start by saying uh, thank you so much for giving me some of your time, man. This is a real treat for me. Oh, you're welcome, Brett. Thanks for reaching out. Yeah. 
So um, just as a little bit of disclosure, uh, usually when people ask me who my favorite visual artist is, you're within the top three. Uh, you know, I would say over the past decade plus, you know, your work has been featured in some of my favorite musicians mm -hmm. uh, as album covers, and I have a shirt of yours. And overall, it's been a really solid thread throughout my life as I've gotten into festival culture. Um, and, you know, where I was thinking about, like, okay, what are we going to talk about? I think one of the most um, important things that is really pertinent to uh, just kind of the world right now has a lot to do with something that happened with you uh, regarding your art studio at the start of the year. So I figured that that would be a really good entry point into uh, just talking about some broader topics. But uh, I wanted to leave the summary for you uh, since it is your life and your experience. So if you could just uh, bring the listeners in who are unfamiliar with uh, you or uh, the events of your life, just kind of what happened at the start of the year and yeah. maybe leading up to where you are today. Great. Um, yeah. Well, like I said, thanks for having me on. I'm flattered to occupy one of your favorite spots of contemporary artists. Um, my name's Andre Jones. I was born here in Colorado, where I currently live. And around, uh, I'd lived in a lot of different places after I graduated, but uh, my father passed in 2013. And I came back to Colorado to um, kind of, we have a, a, a property here. My dad built this really incredible barn. And I came back here to be with my mom and take care of the property. And that's when I kind of started turning this this barn, this massive structure my father built into my personal studio. And it really was, uh, you know, it was, it was definitely sort of my alchemical creative laboratory. Um, everything in there, it's like all the, all the tools, all my supplies, all kind of like the, the archives of all the digital work I've done over the past few decades and a lot of like my most kind of precious physical art objects, artifacts, sacred elements, awards, shrines, like anything that was special, I kept in this one sort of repository. And it was really, for me, it was the, it was the, it was the material foundation that all the art, um, you know, was, was sort of was was birthed in at a traditional zone i had my digital zone and it was I mean, essentially it was sort of my I'm, I'm very i'm kind of a homebody a little bit of an introvert and it was uh you know my most sacred place the place that i felt the most most empowered and the most creative and uh just really i just i just you know sometimes you have a thing and you just keep working on this thing over years and years and um Almost a year ago, I think it was like January 18th. Um, it's one of those days where you just kind of wake up and, uh, you know, your whole, I got a, my, I think I was shoveling the driveway and my wife runs out and is trying to get my attention because I've got like headphones on. I'm like listening to Slayer, just, you know, living my best life. And I can hear, I can see her expression that something's really wrong. And I take my headphones on. She's like, the barn's on fire. And, uh, you know, I think that was that was kind of the initial moment where I, you know, I got this sense that something very deep and like forever life changing is going to be happening. And so I got in my truck, and I only live maybe three minutes away from where the where the barn uh, is or was. And as I I'm driving, just kind of like a bat out of hell, 
And as soon as I turn, I get onto like the highway, I can see this huge pillar of black smoke. It was a, it was a overcast gray day. Like it had just snowed the night before. We've got like eight inches of snow and this, this massive black angry pillar of smoke. I can see it like over the hill. And that's when it really set in. And I arrived there just right before the fire fires got there. And this, uh, it was like a 40 by 60 foot two-story structure was just fully engulfed in just like a phantasmagora of fire. And there were things exploding. I had like munitions in there. It was just such a, it's such an overly dramatic scene, but it was so hot that I couldn't even get within 15 feet. So there was, there was no running in and trying to grab a thing or salvage a thing. So yeah, it was a, it was a very, uh, um, you know, I, I, I definitely went into a, a deep state of shock and denial, kind of all those um, processes you go through grieving and uh, just sort of seeing this, this physical thing that represented, I mean, a lot of times people that went into the barn, they would, when, when I loved having guests there for the first time and watching their expression as they walked through, I mean, every wall, every desk, everything was filled with a thing or an artwork. And it just had this very, um, it had a, it had a really special kind of magic element to it. And people that were inside could say like, Hey, I now I know what the inside of your mind looks like. Like it was very much an external, a physical externalization of my inner world. And, um, yet to lose all of that at the same time. And also just to be struck with just like the power of this fire, you know, watching decades of my life and the things that I had put, my the best of my conscious than to just sort of decohere into this huge angry black smoke rising into the atmosphere um i'd say it's it, it, for me i remember it, it felt like the closest thing to part of me dying but not dying um and uh yeah so i think that was that's the that's the big thing that 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 happened yeah so, you know, we're kind of coming up on a year. Almost a year. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird how time moves. It is. Especially with things where we think like our life is ending, yeah. you know, and then it just kind of moves on and takes a different form. Um, what has been maybe the most challenging aspect of this past year and having this happen and where you are now? It's a good question. Um you know, it has been it, it it has been a challenge to um, recreate a a space that I had the same level of intimacy uh, with than I did with uh, with the barn, and it's been a year, and I still really you know I, I I haven't been able to do that yet. I have a studio I'm renting uh, in Lyons. That's sort of where I have my traditional work set up and it, it's it's the kind of thing where like honestly like I have um you know I have paper and I have pencils and I have all the most all the materials that I would need but at the same time like everything I put into this I know that it's a temporary space like I know that eventually we'll rebuild and like everything is on wheels so I can kind of move it around but I can say that I still haven't you know it, it hasn't it hasn't really turned that it hasn't it hasn't I haven't been able to recreate the 
that sort of feeling of home. Um, uh, this space that I'm in right now is actually the closest. This is a, I call it the command center. It's a decommissioned uh, ex uh, uh, fracking semi truck um, that I got. I got this. I don't know, maybe like oh, maybe like a decade ago. And this is where I have most of like my whole, uh, my digital setup is in here. And um, I have been able, this has actually been the closest I've found, at least from the, on the digital standpoint. I like it because it's really, it's a small, tight, contained space. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a lot harder for me to get distracted. And I got like multiple monitors around here. So I can, um, I have been able to get into the zone here. I have felt like I've made a few like very successful pieces that felt like, okay, now I feel like I'm getting kind of the groove back. But yeah, the, the, the challenge is, is sort of recreating a space that I feel as comfortable with and at the same time balancing all of the energy it takes to rebuild a space. Um, you know, all the process that goes through of, cleaning out all the debris and getting big heavy machines. And now it's kind of like getting permits and working with insurance and contractors. I mean, there's just, it's, I think a challenge that I feel like when I have this and I also have like three beautiful young children and a wife and, you know, an active group of friends, it's like managing being a dad and supporting my family and supporting the small team that I have and keeping up with, the work that it takes to do that and trying to rebuild a, you know, a, a, my creative platform for, you know, my runway for the muse, like all simultaneously, there's, I've had lots of moments just feeling really, um, really overwhelmed. Um, sometimes feeling like I'm kind of like underwater, that there's just so much that it's, uh, it's hard to sparse it and take it into pieces. So, you know, I think this year there has definitely been, I'd say, like more feelings. Uh, depression is not an emotion that I was, I think, I felt like I, I would have described um, as like a state of being over the last few years, but I've definitely sort of gone there. And, um, you know, it's been, it's been hard, but it's been also really valuable. I think those experiences give me a lot of, I have a lot more compassion for people that do suffer um, from that state of mind because it's not something you have to kind of go through it you can't really have it you can read a lot of books and have it described to you but that sort of you know almost kind of existential dread and being overwhelmed so that's that's probably been um the the hardest element of that and i think trying to live up to my own imaginary expectations of like what i should be or where i should be at or um you know having trying to keep up with the expectations of my own, my own Damon. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't thought about this until now, but it's interesting in you kind of talking about trying to create a space that um, helps kind of facilitate the courting of the muse, mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, have you ever really given a lot of thought to how the space or the environment um, kind of modulates creativity? And is that something that you're just maybe a little more lucidly aware of? Like, what do you think goes into a space that helps kind of grease the the wheels yeah. of really bringing creative energy forward? It's a great question. Um, I could think I could sort of sum it up as like a visual metaphor. It's like having your pencil sharpened at both ends. Um, 
for me, I found that uh, over the course of my life, um, I've, I'd say for the past few decades, I've definitely focused a lot of energy on the act of courting of that muse energy. And muse is a word. I like to think that there's a, I've come to understand that there's a, uh, it's pretty mysterious in kind of woo woo, but it feels like there's a, there's a, there's a consciousness, there's a living conscious spirit or energy of creative intelligence. Um, and I feel like it exists all the time. Like it's around us at all times. And, it, it definitely, I, maybe I'm anthropomorphizing it, but at times it definitely feels conscious. Um, doesn't really feel like it has a gender as, as per se, but it feels like there is a, I've had moments of feeling where I'm in a conversation with it, where there's an, there's an active back and forth engagement to that. And it's hard to say because there's so many factors that facilitate, if you imagine to unlock that flow state, it'd be, I kind of think of it like a multi-chamber lock and you have to really hit every pin needs to be activated. And so like the pin of, you know, first, that first comes just like your, your physical body, um, your health, you know, you have to be healthy. You can't, I've never gotten into a flow state when I'm sick or have a headache or I'm too tired. So, you know, there's that element of it. Um, Mentally, you need to be in a mental state to be just open to that possibility. Um, you have to be excited and inspired, which is it's something that it's really hard. I've, I've never I've never found a good way of forcing myself uh, into that into that state. Uh, there's so many factors that come along with that. But as far as I think the f creating a physical space, a lot of it revolves around. Um, I'd say one, yeah, one definite element is a space that reduces the amount of distractions and things that would pull you out of that space, you know? So like when I do have, I have certain evenings, like this weekend, I took a weekend to really kind of get into kind of a ceremonial mode and really focus. And, you know, it's things like turning off your phone helps, maybe disconnecting from the internet, um, getting kind of getting to a place where you're putting as many blinders onto the things that'll take away from that space. And then a lot of it is like, even in, if you have like, you think you have all the set and setting and all the conditions there, it's no guarantee it's going to happen. So part of my strategy with the barn is that, like I said, I kind of used the metaphor of like a runway. I just have everything ready. You know, I'd have like one table with the pencils are all there. They're all sharp. Here's all the paper everything's ready to go. Um, over here, here's another station with a, maybe a different type of charcoal paper. Like I'd want everything, you, you just, you want to remove as much friction in the way. Cause like once it starts, once you get into that, um, that kind of flow state, it's one of the reasons I do, I've gotten in the habit of sharpening my pencils at both ends. Like when it's really happening, the time it takes to sharpen a pencil, it can be excruciating. You know, it's kind of like surfing and you never know how long it's going to happen either. So it's just, it's just getting, doing as much preparation as you can to be, you kind of want to be um, as inviting as, as possible and respectful for how, how kind of precious that energy is and um, what a gift it is to be able to receive that and, um, you know, transmute that through your, 
your mind and your skills and your body into a physical thing that can uh, be a value or a medicine or something for another person. Uh, you know, it's a really special thing. So do you think that, I mean, so you have like the ease of access of a space, but is there anything qualitatively different, say, about the next space that you end up building? It will undoubtedly be different than the barn. It doesn't have the mm -hmm. same kind of history. Do you think that there's kind of a quality that comes from your personal relationship that maybe affected your artistic output and the way that you just like overall felt in that space? Like, is there going to be any way to kind of take that and kind of imbue it into the next space. Yeah, I mean, it'll be different. I mean, I think that there was a really powerful, just like morphogenic field that the barn had. You know, my father had built that barn like with his hands and uh, just being in the barn, I always felt really connected with him. You know, his, the walls of that barn were an external uh, representation of his love for, for me and our family. And so that was something that always made it feel so it always felt I you know I think of him every day and so it really that element of it really connected me to him um but I think building a new space it's also an opportunity for kind of a fresh start you know I can say honestly that like there was a lot of things that I have kind of you know I'm a I'm a, I'm a collector of things um and there was probably a lot of things in that barn that weren't really serving any purpose either I have an opportunity to be a lot more intentional. You know, I kind of, I kind of just, you know, my father was, my, my father died really suddenly. So he wasn't, it wasn't like a planned transition. So I sort of inherited a lot of the things in the barn and the way it was set up. There were a lot of things that were already in place. And so, um, you know, there's a great opportunity to sort of, you know, we're in the, I'm in the designing phases right now of really deciding what exactly are the things that, I need that will, you know, serve what I'm creating um, the most. And so that's, uh, that's, I, I, those are things I look forward to being able to fulfill. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, this idea that I just had of, you know, your father built this space and I feel like really like the highest thing a father wants for their son is for their son to have the capacity to take care of themselves and to be successful and competent. So in this evolution of creating a new space, it almost is um, really paying homage still because it's really expressing that you have created a stable container for yourself and you absorbed a lot of those lessons that, you know, that relationship served and, um, you know, are really on your own in that sense. I yeah. just think that that uh, could be really powerful too. Yeah, it is for sure. Yeah, you know, so... One of the things that I just couldn't help but uh, make a comparison to as I was taking in your story and thinking about uh, just kind of the themes of this conversation, um, I don't know, have you ever heard of the Tibetan Buddhist idea of the bardo? I have, yep. Yeah, so conventionally it's usually known as the space in between uh, a death and then a rebirth, but the teaching does go a little bit deeper than that in that this life is actually a bardo. Mm. Every moment is a sort of transitionary quality to it. And it's something that we tend to um, kind of lose track of because we're always so busy building a narrative. We're always trying to get some ground under us and identify really strongly with something. 
which largely is because groundlessness is a really uncomfortable situation for the ego because it has nothing to hang its hat on. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in life, you know, things like this, like your barn burning down, uh, things will just happen that kind of remove that narrative rug from underneath us and kind of leave us in like a no man's land mm -hmm. where there's not really any signpost to identify with. And it's just a lot of uncertainty. So I'm wondering with this whole experience, if, you know, your contact with groundlessness, you know, all of this um, planning that you had with the barn, I know it was a part of your like retirement plan. Uh, you know, you collected a lot of things for your future in there. Um, how has your relationship to groundlessness shifted? Is that a, a thing that's kind of come up for you? Yeah, it has. And I, I feel like, you know, for people that might not be familiar with kind of like the, the narrative around this, I think it's also really important to sort of mention that I think what characterizes this, the, what happened to me is something particularly extraordinary is that, you know, as I'm, um, you know, I've, if I can kind of, it's hard, it's even hard to kind of go all the way back there, but I definitely remember this, this feeling that, you know, everything that I had, all the energy I'd put and invested into this barn, it was basically to, uh, it was a, it was a, it was a, my best attempt at creating a strong foundation that I could be of service and to kind of create and protect myself and my family. Like it was, you know, everything, all the tools I had to be able to keep creating art was there. And it was this, all the pieces and artwork and just all the just hundreds of sketchbooks and all these original drawings, all these things that I thought were my foundation that I, that I was, I was counting on, um, you know, to have all that deco here, um, within the space of just like several hours, you know, it left me in a, in a place of, you know, of, of pretty, pretty desolate. Like I was, I was devastated and I felt, you know, it was hard to, for me to feel any type of hope, um, around what was happening. And, um, within, I think a day or 24 hours, what the next, uh, stage was, was, I had to get to this point of realizing that I needed to ask for help. And, um, you know, I've mentioned before that I think that was, you know, losing everything was one of, was, was such a huge fear of mine. Um, but the idea of losing everything and asking, having to ask the community or people to help me, it's a kind of fear that I was so afraid of it. I didn't even invest time thinking about it. It was something that was so um, outside. I try to be someone that's really, I try to really be responsible uh, for myself. I try to kind of take that, you know, personal self-reliance as a, um, you know, I, it's a, it's a, it's a principle I adhere to and put a lot of energy into. So to go from uh, like less than zero at this empty space and then being forced to find this to connect with my own vulnerability and reach out to my community. Like I'd never done a Kickstarter or fundraiser or anything like that. Like I felt like that was all like I, that just that never, that, that never even, uh, that aspect really never has held any appeal for me, but being forced to, because I still needed to support my family and my team and the, 
um, just like the, the overwhelming amount of support that came from the community once I made that ask. I feel like that was um, to go to go from like feeling so low to then be so overwhelmed by more energy and more support than I could have imagined. There was definitely a uh, a spiritual and emotional, almost like a, a whiplash, I think that happened uh, for me um, in that moment to the point where it's like, I almost didn't have, yeah, it was very jarring <laughs> to kind of go from, I mean, it was what, it was amazing and it was really wonderful. Um, but there, you know, none of the books I read or none of the conversations I, I think I'd had with people previous, nothing had sufficiently prepared me for how to deal with that. Like first, how do you deal with losing so much? And then the next situation I'm in is how do I go to receiving so much love to lose so much and to gain so much within the span of almost like 24 hours um, was a, uh, yeah, that was a real exercise in mental and uh, uh, just like emotional uh, tensegrity and, and flexibility for sure and adaptation. Yeah. So do you feel like this uh, kind of experience has shifted your relationship to art? Does having that kind of like contrast within 24 hours, this huge happening in both sides, you know, what was that like for you to return to the art making process? Like what was the first piece you made? Was that, um, did that have like a qualitative difference to it? Mm, that's a good question. Um, it did, it definitely took me a while to kind of, get back into, I think the first thing I was really focused on afterwards was, um, I was just going, I think that was just sort of healing myself. Um, did a lot of therapy. Uh, I did a lot of kickboxing. I spent a lot of time like hitting a, hitting a heavy bag and, um, being and, and, and working on that, just trying to get the physical grief like out of my body. Um, and I think I sort of started with sketches. I kind of started small because all it took a while just to rebuild the the the, the digital aspect of what I was I was doing. Um, I think it is the way that I think it's changed or transformed. I, I feel like it's. I mean, I've I've often considered like the work that I do. Um, as a as a reflection and a lot of times it is a form of like gratitude and service um i like i said with the the vulnerability it took to record a video and ask people that i needed their help um that was an incredible incredibly vulnerable thing um because uh, my i feel like i'm much better at expressive of being vulnerable in you know in private settings, uh, I've I realized. I think it it made me. I think the biggest thing is it definitely made me. I'd say before, I had to kind of reach out. I knew that. I mean, I could look at the metrics of how many people like follow th things on social media or how much art that I sell. I mean, I've got I've got tangible metrics to say like, okay, I'm doing the right thing. Like I'm, I'm doing something right because I'm able to support myself and I connect with people in person and I know that they like my work. But I'd say that honestly, I don't think I ever 
really thought that deeply about like why people like my work so much. Cause it's different. There's a difference between I'm going to buy a poster or wear a t-shirt to somebody saying like, I love you. Like I love your work. I love what you do. And I never really had a reason to understand that before. So I think like, you know, I think like one of your questions is like, what was the most challenging like aspect of this, you know, after dealing with the, you know, setting aside just like the, the grief and the denial and all those sort of stages, you know, for me, the, the hardest part was really under, was, was making sense out of how much, um, love and support that I received from people. Um, cause it was so over, um, overwhelming. It didn't really feel real. And, and I could tell that it was real, but it took me, it took me a while to understand that. And I think at first, um, you know, I, I process a lot of things mentally. I'm very mental kind of in my head person. And so for a while I was just trying to mentally understand this, just like the metrics of like, why do all these, like I'm getting so much love, like what are they in love with? Like, why do they love me? Like I wasn't, I, I, I don't felt like I was ever trying to court this many people into loving me. I love making art. I love the experience of making art. Um, I love that people enjoy it enough that I can continue making it. Like that was, that's an amazing thing that I'm super grateful for. Um, but it was, it was, it was a few, it, it took several months before it sort of clicked for me. Um, and I, even before it clicked, I would even, there'd be times, I mean, I think in some of the interviews I would, um, like I was, I think I was, I, I thought I knew what it meant to understand what it felt like, why people loved me. And I think I was even really good at like pantomiming, like, oh, this is what it feels like. Like I could say, thank you. Thank you. I feel all this love, but you know, it's like, how do you, I was never taught what it, how you should, how it should feel to accept the love of like thousands of strangers. You know, that's not a, I don't know if that's a really, that's a, like a natural thing to feel. Um, yeah. And I think it, it wasn't until I did a lot of, you know, real personal, deep investigation of my life and my memories. You know, I have a really great therapist that I've been working with ever since. And um, I think what what sort of clicked for me, I think the first time it, it made sense, to, the first time it really made sense for me was um, I started remembering um, I was, I was, I was thinking about, I was kind of going back in my memory around the creation of a piece that I had, I had made. Um, and I just remembered making this piece. I kind of just went back into just almost kind of sort of like reliving it. And I remember that feeling of a lot of the pieces that I've made. I, like I said, I go to such a vulnerable place. Like when I'm doing high, I do, I create a lot of my work on, um, you know, medium to irresponsible levels of psychedelic enhancement, you know, and it takes like, I mean, every time I've, you know, I, I, I don't know how many times I've done LSD, but I have to, I mean, every time I do it, there is, um, it's scary, um, scary to the sense of like, I'm not like freaked out by it, but I take it so seriously that it's like, okay, I'm going to do it at eight. And then no, I'm not ready yet. I'll do it at 10. I'll do it. At, like, I'm always like, there's part of me that's always like, 
because you never know. And I have enough respect for it to not, I, to not, not take it seriously. But there's a certain, there's a real vulnerability that happens. Um, because on, especially on something like LST, there's a, there's an intimacy that I have to face in myself when I'm here, you know, that's really hard to lie to yourself on, on, on a, on a high amount of LSD. And, um, I just sort of remembered like how this, on some of these pieces, like I can get so intimate with them that many of these pieces I was trying to really, you know, I was putting everything, I wasn't leaving anything. A lot of the pieces I work at, I leave nothing left on the table. I'm trying to just put a hundred percent of me. Um, I find when I'm in that vulnerable place, it also puts me in like the most authentic, it connects me with the most authentic version of myself and realizing that over the years I've been doing this, I've been putting the most intimate, honest, authentic part of me into work. And one of the reasons I've been doing that is because there's part of me that has, that wants to be seen. I want to be seen by God. I want to be seen by my family. I want to be seen. And I didn't even realize I was doing it like that. But once I connected to this idea that, gosh, so much of this hard work is in an effort to be seen and to realize that the people that love me are the people that saw me, that saw this real me. And just to, once I made that connection that not everybody, but there are people that can look through the work and see this part of me that I was so desperate to be seen. It made me instantly understand why they, why they loved me and made me love them immediately. Like it was just, I mean, it was like a one to zero and then I could feel the love. Then there was this big, I just felt like I had some things that were really blocking me from understanding it. But once I understood that, once I could connect with that, the, it, it was so, um, it's, yeah, I think the greatest gift from losing so much is the, is the, is the ability to really feel, I've never been able to feel love from strangers like I can now. And I thought that I could because I didn't know what it was supposed to feel like. So I thought I was doing my best doing that. But in retrospect, I realized that like, I didn't understand how to do that. And now I understand how to do that. And when it comes to being ungrounded or having a foundation, you know, even it took its date, you know, it's a great irony that it took losing all the things that I thought I needed to protect myself, all the things I needed to feel safe and support my family and my team and once I was able to connect deeply with how much love I had, how much love there was, how much support that I had from my community and these people around me, you know, it, it, I, I realized that like, I, even though I thought I was falling into this abyss, you know, my feet like really never touched the ground. Like I had always had support and been supported. And so energetically understanding that I do have this network and this foundation of support it's i almost feel like i can there's the the desperation i felt in that moment of kind of being on my knees and wailing as everything is burning like i don't feel like i'll ever be able to have like that's that feels like a singular experience that i won't be able to repeat on any type of level mm. yeah this, this whole contemplation really makes me think a lot about the relationship between somebody who I guess consumes an art and the person who makes it and how there's this field that connects both that person and the consumer. Um, Cause I know when I heard this happened, I think it was like the day of or the day after 
my experience of that was actually somatic. Mm. There was a like a heart drop that happened, and it was before I could conceptualize it. It was before I could have any idea. It was just this immediate sense of like, oh no, like a no, almost like this like light nausea. Mm-hmm. And I think that many people who connect to the art of somebody, whenever something bad happens to that person, that that is the love. It's this instantaneous, unfabricated, immediate. Um, like danger alarm. Yeah. And I just think that there's something really interesting about that and that we've never met, but we're still kind of having these like biological responses. Like we're hardwired to uh, care for each other. Yeah. You know, and I think until you experience that sense of groundlessness and see who's there, see what comes up, we, we get really locked into our stories and our conditioning. And it can be really hard to just see that fabric of love that really is everything. You know, and it's it's what I think. I mean, the Buddhists when they talk about the bardo, it's it's um it's actually a good thing if you can learn how to rest in the groundlessness. It's all of the resistance to groundlessness that keeps us disconnected from truth. Mm-hmm. So it's like if we can just kind of rest in that, then we can see that we are all so deeply connected. Yeah, you know, it's like having to you know kind of to die before you die. You know, this, it definitely felt like this was, um, yeah, in a way, like I said, it, it felt like part of me was dying. And it also made me realize that like losing everything, like we all lose everything. We're all going to lose 100% guarantee. And I feel like I just got a preview of what it's like to lose everything. And um, I'd say that the fear is worse than the reality because the, the mm. fear can be so... It's hard. It, it's the kind of fear where you don't know how to see past it. It's almost like when I thought, what if I ever thought about the barn burning, like it was just this, a timeline that just went to black. Like I did never, my imagination, I didn't have the resilience or the interest to speculate beyond just the initial shock of it to imagine what life would be like. Cause it's a, it's not a pleasant thought experiment to go through. And it just sort of ends there. Um, yeah, so. Yeah. yeah, I think you said it in your third eye drops interview that you know, the barn burning down was like one of your biggest fears. Mm-hmm. It was like the big what if that was like, you, you even like got a bunch of fire extinguishers. Oh, yeah, and totally. <laughs> this was like a, a thing that you visited often. Yeah. So. You know, I'm wondering about this idea of, you know, fixating on a fear like that. Um, did it prepare you at all? Like whatever simulation that you ran before, like was any of that um, in service of anything? No, or, no it, it wasn't, unfortunately. And it also made me realize like what a waste of energy all the preparation I went through was. Because um, I was always really afraid of fire, um, cause we live in Colorado and in my imagination, I was always concerned about an external fire coming from outside. You know, we've had wildfires that have come up just like a few miles away from our property. Like I've seen, I had a drone that whenever there was like a fire alert, like I'd fly this drone up and I would see, I could be able to track like, okay, what, what's the wind direction? How close is it? I had like huge, um, you know, like, like massive gas gas powered water pumps connected the fire hoses like in the different ditches like i was ready i had fight like i said i i had a firefighting suit and equipment and gloves and helmet and like 
all those things were inside the barn, you know, like I didn't like, it was, it's the kind of thing where you can, I mean, I think it, a certain amount of preparation in today's world is, I think is the, is the, is a responsible, is, is, is a responsible response to the world that we, we live in. Um, there's a lot of, it's a very, uh, you know, it's impossible to know what to expect. And, you know, we live in pretty unprecedented times and, um, but I guess the thing that I learned is, is like, you can try you. Sometimes I realize like a lot of the prepping that I was doing, if anything, it might've just been a way of me kind of just like self soothing, you know, for me, like if I have a fear doing something um, in response to that makes me feel less afraid of the thing, you know, like buying fire, you know, going on eBay and getting a firefighter's like pants and jacket and all these things. The day that arrived, I'm a little less afraid than I was when I didn't have that thing, you know? And so, um, and looking back, realizing like all that, all those scenarios that I, it, it, it's, it's very humbling, you know, because I thought I was at try, I was trying to be as ahead of the curve. I was trying to do as much as I could to anticipate so I could be ready when there was a disaster and to have a new disaster um, completely negate all of the preparations that I had gone through is, uh, yeah, makes you rethink things sometimes. We all have these different strategies. Yeah, it's interesting that, I mean, the fire was so hot that you couldn't even get close to it no. to get any of the gear that's... There's some dramatic irony with that. Yeah. So if those preparations, if all of that didn't help prepare you for it, is there anything that you would recommend for people who have their big what ifs, who are still grappling with the fear, um, having gone through your big what if, is there anything that people can do to more holistically uh, kind of make themselves resilient in case something tragedy does strike? Yeah. Um, well, I could say, I mean, I think the thing that I did realize that I, like I said, I thought that so much of my value was in things, um, you know, I had put so much energy and hope in like, these things will protect me or this thing I, is going to be worth something. Like I, I, so much of my value scale rested in these material objects. And my big lesson is that the most valuable thing that I had was my, my, was an emotional connection and the connection and support of the community around me. Um, you know, like the most, the most valuable thing I had wasn't all these sketchbooks, you know, that I had, or these, these piece, these museum pieces, but the, the most valuable asset that I feel like I had that I developed is being able to have an authentic relationship with the people that support me. And you know, my most valuable asset that I feel like I have with my community is that I've built a level of trust that there's a relationship there and that people trust me and they trust the artwork that I've created. Like that, 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 that authentic connection is is more valuable than any of the physical assets that um I had. So um I think developing and investing your energy into building a community of people around you that support you both on like, you know, especially like on a local level, but on a larger level as well. I think it's our connection to 
each other because when when things happen when we do need support um you know it's really what we re what is people um people are the most valuable thing that will be able to be of service to you in the times when you need it the most yeah so for the folks who um either they have strong relationships or they don't um, the people who meet that edge, who actually meet their big what if, um, and they're in the throes of it, and it's still in that kind of acute phase where there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fear. Uh, is there anything that you maybe wish that you did differently? Or is there anything that you would uh, offer them in terms of how to navigate their own kind of narrative collapse? Yeah. You know, I was really fortunate. Um... I think the things that helped me the most uh, were there was, it's like, I was, I was lucky that I had, there were certain systems that I had in place before this, this came to pass. And some of them were only, you know, I like, I think I had started seeing a personal therapist, like maybe a month and a half before this happened, you know, like I had a system in place where, um, like if I didn't have someone that I could talk to about this that had an education on how to deal with these things and could give me answers and responses that were that that I could trust, you know, having to find a therapist after this happened would have been really tough. But just to have this therapist and open his doors and I just like I think I saw him then I had an appointment with him like the next day, being able to go into his office and just like collapse on his couch crying, you know, like that had been really hard to do if I didn't have somebody in place that kind of had that role. Um, you know, on the physical side, I'd say I have to give so much, I, I feel that, uh, I owe such a debt of gratitude just to this, like this kickboxing dojo that I go to just Easton Longmont, you know, like if I, and I had only started going to kickboxing maybe a month before that, but to be able to have this this place that I could go to for an hour where nobody knew me, nobody knew who I was, and I could just go in there and you turn the phone off and you wrap your fists and you put on gloves and you just I could just hit a heavy bag with hooks until I felt like my body wanted to vomit, you know? It's just like that. Those were some of the most valuable things for me. Um, because even with everything, you know, with the grief, with the support, with the love, with the amount of messages, it's so much that having just that hour, I mean, maybe I'd go once or twice a week, but even just an hour during the day where I'm so physically engaged with things that my mind doesn't have a chance to, um, to go through all these cycles, I felt like that it seems like a small thing, but I felt like that was a really huge thing for me. And it also, when dealing, you know, I think a lot of it is just understanding just they kind of, they say five, I think they said there's like this seven stages of grief around loss or around when something dies, just being ready for that. And, you know, anger is one of those stages. And I'm not naturally a very angry person. It takes a lot to, for me to lose my temper and um, so having an outlet like punching and kicking a huge bag as hard as you can for an hour, um, it just got so much out of my system that otherwise I don't know how I would have had an outlet for that. 
And so I think it's having systems in place to have a healthy way of going through all of these stages and whether that healthy way is having someone you really trust that you can talk to honestly, you know, without any judgment, like there isn't anything I'm afraid to tell my therapist, um, you know, that's his, his job. And I feel that the advice I get from him is going to be healthy for me. So those, a, a physical outlet and an emotional outlet, like those, those really made, I think a big, a big difference um in my ability to uh you know to accommodate to such a such a new a new reality yeah yeah i like the emphasis on um the body yeah. you know i think that while we're moving through things and we can conceptualize our way like this is actually good you know i can definitely like you can like talk yourself into some view but you know the wisdom of the body it still detects uh, a threat you know so literally purging moving energy in a really grounded physical way is um it's just been one of the best things that i've been able to pick up in my life of all the spiritual stuff that i do and um you know the psychological work it really it was like strength training just going and pushing heavy things yeah. and having someone yell at me <laughs> has been just so useful in transforming the way that I hold on to tension yeah. and yeah. really identify it. Yeah, it's a big deal. Um, and I've had some body work done that was helpful. Um, music is really helpful, you know, finding the right, like I think my favorite band as of last year and this year is probably still like the Hermanos Gutierrez. Like I just... You know, you find some music that works that um, really allows, and I, I look for music that allows me to go even like deeper into the emotions that almost there's some type of music that I feel can even like elicit and almost like extract that emotion into a physical, you know, music that just helps me cry or helps me release. Just anything, any opportunity that I found that that allowed me to release emotion or experience emotion uh, deeper. Uh, it was a really beneficial activity. Yeah. Yeah, I find that a lot of times, and myself included, you know, when we come across these experiences, it's really easy to not want to feel the emotion. You know, we're definitely incentivized to kind of hold it together and kind of just like carry onward. But I think when you're in that really raw state, the more you can allow yourself to feel the wide range of fluctuations, I think the less likely it is to become like entrenched and then become like a part of your patterning and then something you're going to have to face 30 years down the line. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's turning toward the difficulty yeah, rather kind of than leaning in. trying to numb it. Yeah. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, do you have a relationship to dance? Is that a thing that is in your life? Um, I can get down for sure. Um, I'm not okay. like an active, I don't, uh, you know, I love dancing. It takes like, I really have to feel it to get into it. But like, once I can get into it, if I, then I can, I'll, I can really get loose, you know, I'll, I'll dance all night, but, um, I don't like, it's not some like dancing is usually a because also because dancing is just so hardwired into so many of the events that I do all the time. It's not something I seek out. I wouldn't be like, oh wow, I really want to go 
dancing this weekend um, is something mm -hmm. I've said never. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but I, I love, I love once I'm, when I'm feeling it, you know, when, when the mood is right, I do love, I do love dancing for sure. Yeah. I only bring it up because uh, the past few years, it's just become a lot more prominent in my life. Not in a like regimented way, but uh -huh. just going and flailing to some electronic music. There's just something about that that really brings me down into that body level where I'm not thinking about lyrics. I'm not trying to like extract. I'm just with whatever wiggle is happening. And I've just found that to be just so relieving and yeah. Uh, cathartic. Yeah. Yeah. I really like uh, dancing to side trance. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I go to Boom Festival every edition. That's probably where I get the biggest like dance thing out of my system because and i like i prefer dancing to side trance than i am to um you know some of our contemporary western music just because it's like i i love like you know i love dancing to like rap or you know the human experience like but sometimes it also as much as i love it it feels like it's also like a lot of work like I have to think about the moves and like what I'm doing and how does it look and does this make sense or how much space am I taking up or side trance is just like, it's just, it's just one thing. There's no, it's very hard to do it wrong and you can do it for hours and hours until the body just can't do it anymore. So I, yeah. I like those dance experiences too, but I'm, I usually have to like warm up to it. Like I'm never like, Oh, let's hit the dance floor. I'm the guy that's kind of, I have to be kind of on the edge for a little while, then I have to feel it, then it has to kind of be in my body, then I kind of start slowly and warm up, but then, uh, then after an hour, I'm like the crazy guy flailing in the middle, like, so. Love that, I have to get charged up a little it bit. It does, yeah, it always takes me a bit to, to warm up. Yeah, uh, here in West Michigan, like the, the culture of dance, even at like shows that, you know, we'd probably run into each other at, it's just not there. Usually I'm the one who's kind of like bringing the heat and everyone's kind of like really kind of like rigid and tight. And I, I, I would really like more ecstatic dance communities. And really, I mean, the state that you're talking about, with like the trance, where you can just go and you're not really uh, planning anything. You're just kind of organically responding to the sound. And there's like very little you even there yeah. when you get into those states. There's it's the just, best, there's yeah. just movement. Yeah. It's a good, a gestalt. That's it's designed that way. It's trying to get as little you as possible. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think uh, another useful contemplation, just um, really focusing on this quality of transitioning in life um, there's going to be times where people in our lives are going through stuff like this. Uh, you know, it's uh, hard enough when it's us, but sometimes it's even harder when it's somebody else because it's like, I want to help, but I don't know how. So do you have any advice for people who have close people who are experiencing that narrative collapse? And was there anything in your experience that like wasn't helpful yeah. from other people? Yeah. You know, I, 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 I can't really think of nothing really comes to mind of anything that's like, wasn't, um, helpful. Uh, cause I realized like everybody was really trying, um, to help. I felt like the things that I definitely remember that there's a certain amount of, um, the people that I reached out to first, cause at first there was, it, it's, it might not be like when you, I, I have a hard time responding to all the text messages that I get on, you know, without disaster or calamity. I'm a horrible 
pen pal and a bad texture and just like and I'm 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 working on trying to address like the avoidant introvert personality with me that gets hangups around that. Um it was always really helpful when people would like text and say, Hey, you don't need to respond don't respond back to me from this. That people just wanted to put that out there. That was really helpful. Um I found that was what the most helpful was I I the first people I would I work I'd call were um like a one of my buddies, Zavi who was a friend of mine and also an incredible artist that had his studio burn in a fire in Ashland. So that was being able to connect with people that understood this particular, there's, there's a particular, there's, you know, the trauma that I experienced when I suddenly lost my father was a totally different trauma than having a fire and losing your body of work. You know, like they, there's things that rhyme in between them, but they're, 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 they're very specific. And so Fight, being able to connect with people that had a similar type of a loss was, uh, I remember that feeling really helpful talking with them because it just felt like there was at least an understanding, you know, because sometimes it feels like people can't understand what, what's happening. Um, and it was more helpful to talk to, to initially talk to people and understand where they were coming from and, and learn from where they were at. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting thing with grief is how isolating it can be. I mean, whether it's something that is universal, like losing a father or something way more specific, which I'm sure feels way more isolating, but it really uh, puts you in your own world. Even if you're out in public surrounded by people, there's just that, that, again, that loss of ground, that loss of orientation that I think makes it really hard for some people to relate with others. Yeah, uh, And then like there's potentially... Uh, kind of devolving into more and more isolation that I think can be really harmful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, we are getting up to that there time. Uh, so I, I want to leave this on like a, a brighter note or oh, yeah. uh, whatever note that it is. Uh, so what, what does the future look like for you? I mean, you've had some pretty incredible projects this year, yeah. despite having some big setbacks. Um, but yeah, what's what's on the docket for you? What are you looking forward to? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think then the initial future, what do we, gosh, I'm trying to think of the calendar. I know that I have things that, places that I'm going are doing, um, the first thing that comes to mind is the, oh, I'm going to go to Australia uh, in March for the, uh, uh, the esoteric, it's the esoteric Esoverse. It's a Psytrance festival, um, like in Western Victoria. Never been, I haven't been, to, I've, 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 it's been years since I've been, I've made an Australian trip. So I'm really excited to see all my Australian friends and family out there and get some side trance. And so that's going to be March. April is going to be the, uh, the eclipse festival in Texas. Um, highly looks so good. Looks so good. <laughs> that lineup that is lineup like, is, it's everybody. It's kind of everybody. Yeah. It's pretty much yeah. everybody. So that'll be amazing. Going to bring the whole fam. I'll bring the whole family out to that. Um, that'll be amazing. really exciting. And, um, yeah, I mean, a future of, of rebuilding. We've got a long, I mean, that's something I've learned too. One of the hardest things is like, sometimes I feel like I fight the ex, like that people have an expectation of how fast I'm 
able to rebuild or sort of like rise. Yeah. I'd say like the amount of time I've heard the Phoenix metaphor, that might not, maybe that's not helpful anymore. Maybe I don't <laughs> want to hear another Phoenix analogy anymore. I yeah. got it. It's, yeah. I love it. Thank you very much. It's not helpful the hundredth time somebody said, I'm kidding, you know, but it's kind of like, man, how, cause it's hard. I felt the other day I had a, I had a moment of just like, cause I get sometimes I'm just like, there's so much I need to do. Like there's so much and there's times where, uh, you know, like as amazing as like, I've gotten so much support and so much love. And then a lot of times it's just me here and I'm just lonely and I'm like, how, what am I going to do? How am I going to fix this still? I can honestly, like the other day I, I felt like, I still felt like I was completely buried underneath like the ashes of the fire. Like I was weighed down by the ashes of everything around me, you know? And, uh, you know, I have to kind of just pep talk myself and pick myself up. Um, cause it does, it, it will take a lot of work. Building is a lot of work. Getting permits for everything is a lot of work. Designing is a lot of work. But one of the ways the future looks is my one of my best friends, Travis, he um as soon as he heard what had happened, he called me up and he's just like, Andrew, um uh, Tra Travis is one of my friends that we've we've worked on all the big projection projects I do, like the Sydney Opera House and Empire State Building. He's been a part he's he's the owner of the company that does that. And he's he's probably the first guy that ever got me into the immersive things and like the dome projects. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think the day of or the day after, he's like, I'm sending you a dome, like you're getting a dome. And uh, <laughs> he he totally, totally came came through and that, it actually just arrived last week. And so I've got, it, it, it. right now it looks like massive flight cases and huge pallets with just thousands and thousands of pounds of of the different struts and the screens, but it's really, it's a, it's almost a brand new, it's a really incredible, like a 40 foot projection dome. So that's something, wow. you know, it's like rebuilding the barn will be cool. That'll be really great to like rebuild the space fresh. But a lot of that will, will still be trying to rekindle or create something that was there before. But it's the, the dome is exciting because it's building, it's a new thing. Like I've never had a dome on the property. Like it's got the same, it was made for the sphere as like a way of previewing the sphere before they built the sphere. So it has the same sphere canvas on it. So it'll be an area we can create content for the sphere and preview content and work with other people. And so that's on the property and we're gonna start, you know, it's winter now. It's not a great time to be like pouring concrete or working outside. So, you know, I'll be doing a lot of just kind of like, what do I call it? Like wood shedding during these like internal winter times and coming up with a lot of plans. And I think hopefully um, in the, during the uh, probably spring, we're going to start kind of breaking ground and making things happen. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that. Uh, excited about that kind of being a resource for other artists that want to be doing more dome things. I'm kind of excited about doing more portraits and doing some more workshops and teaching. And, you know, every event I go to, I'm excited because I feel like I am able to connect on a deeper level with 
people that support me and my friends than I ever have before. You know, like I know that I'm a lighter person now. I know that I'm more, I feel I'm, I'm, I'm more approachable and I'm more present. And, you know, the things, the things that I've, the way that I've been able to um, grow on a, on like an emotional and like a psychological level and, and be here for my, my friends, family, children, wife, and community is there's a, you know, there's an upgrade and a value to that, that I don't know how I would have gotten here without something, without a, a, a terrible, horrible, fiery wake up call in order to do that. So I don't know. Yeah. I feel like, you know, I've, I've, I've lost so much. And, um, I like to say that I internally, I feel like I'm also like more, I feel more complete than I ever have before too. Hmm. Yeah. That's one of the things I think it was Ram Dass that says, uh, suffering brings grace. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but yeah. spiritual teacher, you know, he ended up getting a stroke and, he said, like, I don't wish the stroke upon anyone, but I wish the grace that the stroke brought for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. No, like you mentioned, uh, Michael Phillips, who I love Michael and I love his shout out to the third eye, third eye podcast. But, um, I don't know if you caught the recent one he did with Eric Godsney. Um, Eric is, Eric is quickly becoming like one of my favorite, just contemporary philosopher thinkers, um, and uh, they get they go deep into a lot of like Jungian aspects, and it's something that I've I've actually always sort of been kind of wrestling with. I've always known that there's a deep connection between um, between trauma and you know creative expression. Um, like I know I I I I've always seen like the the correlation, and I know in my own life, like I knew that there's something about trauma and suffering that you know like you know suffering doesn't obviously doesn't doesn't equal art or creativity um but i've always been really curious on like w how to put that sort of like into words and uh michael i think i don't know if it was if, if he was quoting jung but he had a statement where he said it's really from the point of you know when it comes to differentiating yourself and being an artist it's um it's that what suffering does it's it's suffering Suffering purifies our compassionate heart. Uh, I thought that was so beautiful, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, there's something universal about going through a traumatic thing. Like it's like encoded in us to be able to have those experiences. Yeah. And I think when we experience something like that, it helps us recognize in the subtle gradations in other people, just how they might be struggling with something similar. You can relate, like, I know what pain feels like. I know what loss feels like. Yeah. And you can like see the glimmer of that in people because we're all kind of marked by tragedy. Yeah, no, I mean, I think suffering is something that really does connect all of us. I remember like when my father passed, just realizing what I was going through, it gave me so much compassion for everyone. Um, you know, no matter if you're like, in line at the grocery store and traffic, just knowing like you, you never know what's going on with another person. You never know what's happening. You know, they could be going through the same thing that you're going. And it just makes you, or you see someone that's older than you, like they went through this, like they lost, they've, they've, by their age, they've lost both of their parents, you know, like it just, yeah. it is suffering that can um, make us more compassionate and does connect us 
And when we make it through something, you know, like by having this type of fire for any artist that loses this, like I feel like there's a, there's a medicine I have for that. There's a way that I can be of help or be, a, be part of a remedy when someone else experiences this. Cause like I said, like we, you know, we all lose everything a hundred percent eventually. And, uh, I feel like this experience is definitely this, the going through the suffering has helped better prepare me for when that eventually day comes for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, I think that that's a good place to kind of bring this to a close. That yeah. seems like a really pertinent kind of period. Uh, so I want to say thank you so oh, much. Thank you, Brett. Android, for, uh, it was really uh, quite a treat to have you on. Um, where can people kind of stay plugged in with you? How can they support you as you're in this kind of liminal space? Sure. Yeah. Um, they can find me. We've got pretty active on our Instagram. I just started using Twitter. I'm not very good at it, but Instagram, uh, the website is androidjones.com. Uh, and um, if they want to support us, we'd love your support through, the, I think the, the best way to support us is through buying some of the, uh, uh, art that we offer on our website. Um, that's the, that's our favorite way to interact and our favorite way to kind of add value to people's home. We have a whole, we have a, um, a lot of really amazing prints and pieces and clothing. You need a jacket. We just came out with like a winter line. So that's a great way of supporting us. And we would definitely appreciate that as much as possible. Um, that's always helpful. And yeah, follow us. We're doing... I don't know how long, how wide your 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 viewership is, but we have a exhibition that's in uh, Turkey right now uh, for Samskara. Uh, we're opening one soon in uh, in Bangkok in Thailand, so that's going to be kind of exciting. We do a planetarium show in uh, I think Kansas City. I don't think we've locked the dates down there, but yeah, yeah. Just keep an eye out for for what we're doing. Yeah amazing bangkok and turkey like i didn't realize yeah you had that much reach that's amazing yeah well the, the swami and the full dome they do all the heavy lifting for that um mm, yeah mm -hmm. yeah yeah and just thank you thank everybody out there i love you thank you so much for your support thanks for your time and thanks for tuning in to us yeah, yeah. wonderful android thank you yeah my pleasure thank you All right, everybody, that was the episode. Thank you so, so, so much for listening all the way through until the end. I really do make this show for you, and I do not take your attention lightly. Again, that was Android Jones. If you want to stay plugged in with his work, head on over to androidjones.com. He's also all over all the social medias, and you can plug in with him there. I also recommend checking out Spongledroid on YouTube. It's a collaboration that he did with uh, Simon Posford of Spongle. Really cool. You can see his work in action, live screened all over some amazing music. It's a, it's a great time. Uh, if you want to stay plugged in with this show, head on over to patreon.com slash 21st Century Vitalism. Uh, just consider signing up. It's just like leaving a little bit of a tip. It helps. You can subscribe on YouTube, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram. We're in the digital age. You know what to do. Again, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next week.